Hello, I'm Diana Thomas. And I'm Tom Harper. Welcome to That Will the Smith Show. A podcast about the historical, geographical, natural and human background to the world of Wilbur Smith. It was 1996, and I was writing the novel that would become Birds of Prey, my return to the world of the Courtneys. Birds of Prey reached further back in time than any Courtney novel before it, back to the middle of the 17th century, when the English and the Dutch were at war for the rich provinces of southern Africa. The words I was staring at were Francis Courtney speaking to his son, Howe. If I'm being cruel to you, I had written, it's because I know there is a destiny ahead for you. They were deeply personal, because they were inspired by what my father might have said to me. My father, of course, had been more prosaic. You'll get your ass kicked, he had said, if you don't pull yourself together. He'd been gone for eleven years, and Birds of Prey was to become my epitaph for him. I'd been chronicling the history of the extraordinary Courtney family since When the Lion Feeds first with a trilogy focusing on Sean and Courtney's life in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and then with a five-book sequence that began in 1985 with The Burning Shore, continuing through to Golden Fox in 1990. The second series had been about the modern African world, but by 1996 I was keen to go back to the past. That is Wilbur writing in his autobiography on Leopard Rock about how he came to write this, uh, I guess we'd call it a prequel trilogy about the Courtenays, uh, that starts with Birds of Prey, which is the subject of our episode today. And this is us doing something which I remember mentioning in passing weeks and weeks ago on the previous episode, which is that perhaps we should think about doing the complete and utter history of the Courtney family in the proper historical sequence. And so... This is the first of a series of podcasts about what you might call the, the Courtney's as pirates at sea, sailing up and down the African coast, around Arabia, across to India. And then in later series, we'll be going, as Wilbur did, through the various kind of eras of the Courtney saga. But we're beginning on the high seas with birds of prey and a boy at the top of a mast looking out to sea. Yes, and the boy is Hal Courtney, who is really the hero and the protagonist of this story. Um, and Wilbur talks in that excerpt you read, Diana, about fathers and sons, and that this was uh, the sort of the, the theme he wanted to address. And it's that is the engine that drives certainly the first half of the book, is Hal and his father Francis. Sir Francis. Sir Francis Courtney, I should say. I mean, it's also a coming-of-age story. Um, it's a fathers and sons story in which, as it were, the boy becomes a man and, in a sense, leaves his father behind, or not by any choice of his. Um, and what you realise very quickly in the... In the bird, Birds of Prey begins really, really cleverly because there's actually about 40 pages of the book before what you might call action takes place, like swashing and buckling and fighting and cannons and all that kind of stuff. But what you get is this amazing build-up of all the various characters who are going to, or a selection of the various characters are going to play out in the book, and the tensions between them, the conflicts between them, the love between them and the hate between them, the emotions, the emotional landscape of the book is set out really grippingly in the opening of the book. Yeah, and it's just as well that it is, because this is an absolute epic book. Uh, it's nearly 800 pages long. It covers a vast geographical uh, and story area. Um, and and the thing that holds it together, really, is that, that those core connections between this sort of central cast of characters. 
And I, I think, I mean, this book for me is Wilbur at his absolute freewheeling peak. It's a book that's written where you can really see his sort of instinctive approach to storytelling at work. I don't think it's a book that you would ever plan. You certainly don't read the opening and have any any clue where it's going to end up. You don't. You know where it's going to start. This has a bizarre thing to say. You know where it's going to start. And I don't think that Wilbur necessarily... I mean, he, he describes in, in On Leopard Rock, writing this book in, in his, on his private estate in the Seychelles, Cap Colibri, I think it was called. As, as we all dream of doing. Yeah, okay. it just sounds like, oh, yeah, that's why you write bestsellers. Okay. <laughs> so you can have a private estate in the Seychelles. I knew there was a reason I do this for a living. Yeah. Um, except he actually got it. <laughs> and he's there, and he's inspired by this idea of fathers and sons, which, of course, is a motif throughout a lot of his work. Yeah. And then there's also a, a, a legend in the Seychelles of this amazing kind of cache of private, of, of, of pirate um, gold left by a, a French pirate, uh, Lavasseur, um, which has never been found. Yes. And so buried or, in, or cached hidden treasure is, again, one of the, one of the kind of springs of this book. And, and someone not a million miles from this podcast in conversation before the show described this book as mad, uh, which it is. It's brilliant. That was me. It's, it was you. I, that, that, <laughs> I actually kept my... I'm a, a good journalist. I, I wouldn't reveal my sources, but since you want to admit it. <laughs> and, and I kind of agree with you, because the thing about this book is, that it's, as you're reading it, it's absolutely gripping. It's, I, remember, I remember the first time I read it. It was just wonderful. It's, it's proper, proper, proper high-octane Wilbur. And then as a, as a prof, sort of professional, you go back and you look at it and think, gosh, this, this is not a book that anybody who sat, the kind of writer who sat down and had all their chapters all worked out in advance and then just kind of painted by numbers going through from kind of one to a hundred. It's, it's absolutely not that book. It's absolutely the book of a man who wrote from instinct, who just, who just could conjure up stories out of the air. So um, I suppose we should probably now explain both why it's brilliant and it's bonkers. So. Yeah, I, I think it's really feels there's there's sort of two things I think impressions I get of it. One is of the kind of the classic, almost like Scheherazade with the Arabian Nights, just telling the story and having to sort of continue it and continue and continue it and sort of almost improvising it on the spot. It is like watching as a jazz musician doing yeah. this sort of virtuoso improvisation. Uh, and you sort of keep on waiting for it to all collapse, but actually they're so good they they can sustain and, it. And as in jazz, it comes back to themes. I mean, a jazz yeah. person, like Miles Davis, would take I don't know a song of Bye Bye Blackbird, and would mm. and having given you the basic theme, would then just go off in a wild improvisation, not, not brilliant improvisation, and come back to it. And that's kind of what this book does. It keeps coming back. To, to the motifs, the riff. Yeah, it does, and to the, to the characters and, and to the places, which we'll talk about. Um, the other thing is it just reminds me of an overstuffed Christmas stocking. I don't know if you ever come down to one of those on Christmas morning down it where it's yes, absolutely I... bulging. It's got all the novels and bits. Yes, 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 you know, the, yes. Literally, and, and you're sort of wondering what's in it because this is a book where Wil it feels as though Wilbur, it's interesting, this was all his most historical book other than the Egypt books to date. Yeah. Um, so he's going back to a time he'd never really looked at. And it feels like someone who's got so much he wants to write about and he can't bear to leave any of it out. So he's just going to chuck absolutely everything in, you know, uh, several, several kitchen sinks worth. I mean, it's uh, amazing. It, it's got all sorts of different types of history. You have kind yeah. of the, the kind of mercantile history of trade between, between Europe, Africa and the Indies. You have yep. you have the chronicles of war between the English and the Dutch. You have the then you have the settling of Africa starting from Cape Town um, by Europeans before actually many of the black African tribes who migrated into southern Africa had got there. At this point, at the the San, the original um, inhabitants of the indigenous population. Um, you've got slaving. You've got Zanzibar. You've got the whole Arab world, and then you've got two legendary monarchs 
Monomatapa. I think I've got that right. Monomatapa. He's an African, Central African legendary monarch. And Prester John, who's this iconic Christian king who has been a figure of kind of European mythology since the late Middle Ages. Yeah. And it's all in one book. Yeah. And and plus one of one, if not two, of the holiest relics in Christendom just thrown in for a good measure. Absolutely. Yeah. Just just you're quite right just for that. So I'd almost forgotten. <laughs> yeah. They're like the orange. And a little bit of chocolate as well. Yeah. At the bottom yeah. of the Christmas stuffing. Having having said all this, anybody who's listening may have their head whirling now. What on earth are they going on about? So I guess we should begin actually telling the story and revealing yeah. the characters. Well, we've already met Hal, who is um, the young boy of about 18, I think, when the novel opens. So we're in the 16, I think we're in about 1666. Even younger, I think he was or 16 or 17, I think, but late teens, yeah. He's a teenager. Yeah, and he's on board his father's ship, which is called... Um, the Lady Edwina. The, La- the Lady Edwina, of course, named after his mother. Yes, and they are on station off the coast of Africa because the England is at war with Holland uh, and they are patrolling for Dutch ships coming back from the Indies laden with treasure uh, and, and with spices and trade goods. And this, this is, you talked about the Courtney's as pirates and this becomes quite a key theme in the book they are technically privateers because they're sailing under a letter of mark from the king which the king of england which gives them the right to basically um it's basically subcontracting the business of war yes um it gives them the right to attack dutch shipping um and and profit from it as long as the state of war persists um anyways so there they are and what they're waiting for as well as the first sighting is the first sniffing because the first time they detect it, that the, sh- the ships are coming is by the smell of spice on the air. That's right. Yes. yes, yes. And so they, they sniff out, they literally sniff out their prey. Yes. Um, but they're also waiting, they hope, or possibly waiting for assistance from a fellow British privateer, the Earl of Cumbrae. Uh, yes, that's that's how that's how I think of it. Um, and he is he rejoices in the nickname the Buzzard. Uh, and the pirate, the French pirate that you mentioned, uh, Olivier Levasseur, um, whose legendary buried treasure was part of what inspired Wilbur in writing this novel. Uh, his historical nickname was La Bousse, um, which our French listeners will know means the buzzard. So Wilbur very much interpolating from history. That's that's a very Wilbur-esque thing where you, where you, you have a character who is named tangentially after a real character. Yes, but 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 changed in some key way. So Absolutely. here he's changed him from a proud Frenchman to a none more Scottish Scotsman. I mean, he's got red hair. He walks around in a kilt. He carries a claymore uh, and drinks whiskey. He does. Um, so there is no mistaking the fact that this man is a Scotsman. He's not Welsh. That's for damn sure. Um, and he's a rogue. I mean, the, when we first meet him, Angus, he's actually Angus Cochran, the Earl of Cambrai. Cumbrae, aka the buzzard. Um, yeah. But let's just call him let's just call him Buzz or the buzzard. Um, but anyway, um, at this point, we know very early he's a bit of a rogue. Yeah. He's not trustworthy. He's slippery. He's out for number one. His we later discover his family were were sheep rustlers before they stumbled upon an earldom by backing the right right side in some sort of political Scottish regal fight. Yeah. Um, but all we think of at this point is that he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a bit of a rogue. Although interestingly, part of the way that Wilbur signals that is that um, he's a slaver. Yes. And whereas Sir Francis Courtney will have no truck with that, uh, the, the buzzard is a slaver. And I think that's one of Wilbur's sort of not so subtle signals early on that um, there are degrees of morality in the privateering business, and uh, the buzzard is definitely lower down the ladder than, than Sir Francis. I mean, basically, almost anybody would be lower down the moral ladder than Sir Francis, because Sir Francis is intensely <laughs> moral, intensely religious. Yes. He, belo- he, and indeed, as the buzzard does too, but the buzzard is a bit, a bit of a, a disreputable element, he belongs to this uh, sort of 
Knights Templar type um, outfit, referred to as the uh, the Knights of the Cross of the Holy Grail, or the it's the, 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 the Knights Notonier of Saint George and the Holy Grail. There we go. And in Notonier comes in those also. Anyway, so they are essentially a seaborne version of of a sort of chivalric order. And in fact, I think later in the book we discover that the in the in the mythology of the book, the when the Templars were all destroyed by uh, the French yes. monarchy in the 14th century, the, the Templars who could sail basically jumped on a ship um, and escaped and founded yes. this order of the, the Knights Notonier. Notonier obviously being French for navigator, um, and the, this order has then continued down through the centuries. Uh, exactly. And, and, and Hal is being initiated by his father into two things, first seafaring and second the order. So, so when we meet Hal, he's endlessly being schooled toughly. There's a definite tough love element. Yeah. Um, so that he will so that he will know how to navigate, know how to run a ship, and also know the rituals and the code and the catechism and all that sort of Freemasonry-ish stuff that goes with being in some sort of secret order. Yeah. And yeah. and being a young lad of in his teens, and at this point we should also note that he's described as being still and he can't be that too far into his teens because he's still described as being essentially beardless and still has that look where there's an almost prettiness about him. He's just yeah. this very beautiful young adolescent. Um, but he's not by any means a man, although he's learning it. Yeah. Um, as we discover because because he's tested, as much as his father is testing him in what you might call the mental aspects of of his what what he's essentially going to inherit. He's also being tested physically by his his father's loyal lieutenant, Abelie. Yes, and this is the first appearance of Abelie, who I think is one of the great fan favourite characters um, who recurs uh, in future books. Uh, and yes, he is this super cool warrior, um, an African who was taken from his homeland as a child, uh, enslaved, then I think I guess freed by Sir Francis, um, and has become Sir Francis's consigliere, right hand yes. man, um, an absolute warrior uh, of, of the first order. Um, and yes, he he appears very early on in Birds of Prey. Um, <laughs> basically, appears out of nowhere and yes. jumps on Hal with a with a giant sword, and all you you you, you think. What on earth is happening? Someone trying to kill yes. him, and then you realise that this is actually a practice fight. But um, it's, it's a pretty hard-fought practice fight. As you describe that, I'm thinking of the Pink Panther and and, yeah, yeah, yes. and, and Kato coming out of yes. coming out of a yeah. cupboard. Yeah, there is there is something of that, isn't there? Yeah. But um, but the, the, the key thing about Abelly, and this will become important in the story, is that his face is covered with um, scars, with 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 as um sort of ceremonial scars. Yes, yeah, so rit- ritual scarring. Ritual yeah. scarring, exactly. He's, his face is covered with that. And and um, in this, so and after Hal has been jumped on, they have a fight and the, kind of, the crew gather around. And it's, and what happens is that Hal, for the very first time, I think, or get the impression it's the first time, bests Abelie and, and I think actually um, uh, cuts him, doesn't he? Um, yes, he does, and yeah. and that, and is then told to 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 um, urinate over the cut because that will disinfect it. Um, yes, and, and, and we learn that that along the way in the fight, Abley is actually secretly very pleased about this because it shows that Hal is going to is sort of getting towards. In a way, it's a, it's a sort of it's a it's a sort of initiation you might almost get in a in a warrior tribe. I mean, you, you know, you 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 prove your manhood by acts of valor and and physical courage and physical ability um, also kind of going beyond i think the th- it's almost like the sort of blood mist this red mist comes over how uh, yes. and and that's when he suddenly starts fighting and it's this yes. idea that you can't live in this sort of slightly safe childhood yes. world exactly. where it's all a game and you don't really have to um no. give it your all you absolutely have to commit uh, and really go beyond yourself 
uh, in order to become a man. And I think that's, again, a very strong idea in Wilbur's writing. And, and both Aberley and Sir Francis are, are, as it were, risking Hal hating them in order to get Hal toughened enough to be able to withstand the life that he is bound to encounter being in the situation he is. So there they are. Meanwhile, and they're on, and they're on the Lady Edwina, which is a, which is you know, pr- principally a fighting a fighting vessel, a fighting frigate. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, a great, big, vast <laughs> Dutch ship. The uh, it's called the Steadfastness, isn't it? St- uh, stand. Uh, st- stand. Stand. Very good. Uh, which is as as our listeners will know is Dutch for resolution. Resolution, I suppose. I knew it was something like that. Anyway, aboard this ship are two characters, three actually, who are going to become four characters. We're going to say, I keep thinking, it's like like Monty Python. Amongst the characters on this ship are such diverse characters as. I was literally saying the words Monty Python when you interrupted me. Listeners, you should know that Tom and I have spent the morning basically gag fighting, which is that. We think of the same joke at the same time and then try and get it out ahead of the other one. So I apologise if this is spilled into the podcast. Anyway, among the characters on the resolution are the uh, Dutch governor, uh, soon to become of, uh, of the Cape province, who is sailing west from the Indies with a... Sh- uh, whose, whose name is uh, Pe- Petrus van der Velde. Van der Velde, exactly. Who is sailing from the Indies with his cart, with his ship filled with, I mean, spice and and hardwood, and and gold and silver and just lots of thoroughly treasury things, um, and and a military man, uh, Cornelius Schroeder. Cornelius Schroeder, who is who is a proud, arrogant, fighting man, just the sort of chap who's going to come up against the Courtney's, you think. And a a sort of nursy, uh, handmaidenly, nannyish old servant called Zelda, who is sort of spying on the woman who is her mistress on behalf of Van der Velde, and the woman who is the absolute son around whom all these other characters revolve. Uh, is Katinka. Katinka is Van der Velde's very beautiful wife. Yes, very beautiful, very young. Very young. She's been she's been sort of married off to Van der Velde as a kind of political move, because her father is a very big, powerful figure um, in in Dutch political life. In the Dutch East India Company. Indeed. And, but the thing about Katinka is, let's be frank about this. She is bad to the bone. This is first indicated by the fact that she is ruthlessly sexual, by which I mean to say it's not just that she is highly sexed, it's that she is extremely manipulative and devious and cunning and even sadistic as things play out in the ways in which she will use her sexuality to um, give herself power and to harm other people. And she's very, very, very gorgeous, and knows it. So, and 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 has this as as you were sort of saying, it's not that she's intensely sexual, although she is, um, and it's not also that she's intensely brutal and cruel, although she is. It's the fact that those two things are absolutely bound up in her, um, so that she does derive this sexual pleasure from uh, from cruelty and blood and seeing people hurt. Yes, she's 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 a sort of psychopathic sadist, basically, um, wrapped wrapped up in a sort of you know fabulous um, Hollywood bombshell um, exterior. And I mean, I think I think it's important because because the other thing, of course, that we find problematic these days is that later it turns out she's actually bisexual. Yeah, but I don't. That's true. But the point is not that she's a highly sex bisexual woman. It's the delight she takes in hurting other people and in torturing them and in teasing them and in provoking them. And that's what makes her one of the (laughs) 
Okay. <laughs> One, if not two, if not three, if not four, if not four. among the many things that, that, that make this book fascinating is the multiplicity of bad guys that Francis and Hal have to come up against. Um, anyways, so the two ships draw near and the Dutch are unaware that they're coming up against a ship yep. that is that is about to, to attack them. And, and I think it's fair to say that one of the reasons they're unaware is that Francis Courtney, this terribly honourable knight who reads divine service to his sailors every day, is approaching flying the Dutch flag. I don't know about you, but this struck me as a bit underhanded. Well, all's fair in love and war, but yes, you're right. It's not cricket, that's for sure. No, it's, it's not cricket. Um, and she, Katinka, uh, is is actually she goes out on the balcony of her cabin. I think I'm right in saying, yeah, to right. to 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 have a look at the sailors who are approaching and to let them have a good look at her, because she just simply cannot resist. It's a kind of addictive thing with her. Yeah, she's sort of flashing her cleavage at them. I think is that right? Yes, she is yeah. absolutely. And so and so the exercise of her sexual power is is a compulsion in the same way, as it were, the exercise of his honour is a compulsion for Schroeder, or the, or that's where the, the endless hunt for treasure is a compulsion for, for the buzzard, or, or this kind of almost crusaderish kind of Christian ethic that, that Sir Francis has. Yeah. Anyway, by about 40 pages into the book, these two ships are now floating close together, yeah. sailing slowly close together. And then Sir Francis lowers the Dutch flag and pulls up his real flag, which is the Croix Pâté, um, which I think is a cross with a bar across it. Is that right? Or one of the, it's like a cross de Lorraine or something like that. Anyway, it's a cross, yeah. which is the symbol of the Notonier knights. And and does he also put up the English? Uh, yes, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure he. I'm pretty sure he also puts up the cross of St George. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he has placed his um, ship alongside uh, the, the the resolution, and kabang, the attack begins. Yeah, for the first, but definitely not the last time in the book, all these characters are thrown violently together. And we're not going to go into all the ins and outs, but uh, Sir Francis leads of this battle. But Sir Francis leads his crew aboard the um, the Dutch ship, and the battle is sort of uh, you know going quite well for them. But then a cowardly seaman named Sam Bowles retreats. Uh, he you know, I guess the battle's turned against him, but he retreats back to the Lady Edwina, cuts the cables that are holding her onto the Dutch ship. Uh, and sails her away um, tr- with a few of his shipmates, try- uh, basically um, cowardly leaving the fight and leaving Sir Francis to his fate. And this is, again, a sort of a, such a classic Wilbur touch in that Sam Bowles comes in and he's just some random seaman. And the first time he's introduced, it's almost as if um, Wilbur just needed to give a name to a character who's doing this thing. Um, I, I, I don't think it's almost as if. I think that Sam Bowles, he was obviously, in, in a writer's mind, written to serve a particular plot function, which is to separate one boat from another, because that actually the purpose of that is to enable Hal to carry out his first act of manly valour and, and, and leadership. Yeah, yeah. But something about Sam Bowles must have resonated with or stuck in Wilbur's mind, because this yeah. snivelling character, this awful ratty little man, then literally takes on a life of his own, and and that and it always seems like a cliche when a writer says, "Oh, a character started to write themselves," but it's true. It's absolutely true. That is what happens. Yeah. You you get a character, and they yeah. they won't go away. You keep either you keep needing them, or you keep kind of wanting to scratch that itch and go back to them. Yeah, but there's just something about them. They're just tremendously useful, or tremendously interesting, or what have you. So Sam Bowles, he's only ever going to be like a supporting cast. He's the kind of if you were to make a mega movie of this, Sam Bowles is the kind of juicy little part that a really good character actor, like a younger Tim Roth or someone like that could do 
and suddenly yeah. find themselves winning the best supporting actor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. kind of Tim Roth would be great. But anyways, yeah, yeah, and it, yeah, and in fact, as a character who seems to sort of come on almost accidentally, he actually you know outlives. Yeah. A lot of the more kind of headline cast he really actually does. has arguably more of an impact on on some of the core story moments, and and, and also he his his kind of he goes from being just a cowardly chancer basically. Yeah, he does become proper bad. Yeah, as things go. On. Luckily, Hal is able to pretty much single handedly get back aboard the Lady Edwina, face down Samballs, um, bring the ship back. To the Dutch ship just in time to rescue his father and uh, complete the uh, conquest of the Dutch ship um, for England. Yes, indeed. So now I'm trying to remember the geography of the ships and who is on what boat when. But the kind of key plot thing that next, or the key character development thing that happens in Hal's life is that he ends up in the next door cabin to Katinka. Yes. So just to, to clarify the logistics of the boats, because the Standvastigheid, uh, the resolution, uh, is uh, a much superior ship. Um, this is, again, is, I love this, the, the sort of the pragmatism of this, um, because often in sort of nautical fiction, the, the ship is really romanticized. And here... Yes. Um, even though the ship is named after his late wife, the Lady Edwina, Sir Francis has no compulsion. He's like, oh, well, <laughs> that's a rubbish ship. I, I, the new ship's much better. I mean, so he basically moves his entire crew, minus sort of small skeleton crew, onto the, the, the newly renamed resolution, uh, sends off the Lady Edwina, um, with, uh, to, I think, to head for home, um, and, uh, and decides that Standvastikheid is the ship. No, no, um, he's taken um, um, Vandervelde and Katinka captive. And isn't the Edwina sent off to take the message back to Holland that he will release? Yes, that's right. That's right. He said he's, he is, so Schroeder is sent to Holland to take the message about the capture and to demand the ransom. And Van der Velde and Katinka stay with um, Sir Francis until he can ransom them. And then they sail off to, towards Sir, Sir Francis' sort of his base. His pirate lair, if his you will. Indeed. An elephant lagoon. It's called um, yeah which is never the location's never really specified but it's got to be i figure somewhere between cape town and durban yes. on the um sort of southeast corner of south africa although there is at this point no such thing as durban but yes in in, in contemporary terms that's what it is yeah and there's basically there's a bay and within the bay there's a lagoon it's sort of two two levels of and and so they go to the lagoon because I think I think also the resolution has been damaged in the storm, hasn't it? It's been, it's been, it's been and, and, yeah. It's been, first of all, it's damaged in the storm. Then obviously it's been damaged in the in yeah. the big fight. And so they go they go to the bay, and they and they unload the cargo, uh, the best bits of which are taken off to this secret hideaway, which Sir Francis yes. has. Sort of yes, in a only Sir Francis and Hal know where it is. Even yeah. Abilie, uh and some of their other kind of core crewmates aren't exactly. let in on the secret of where they're hiding the treasure. But meanwhile, Hal has has, has for the first time in his life, really, because because he's a, I mean, you sort of get the impression he's been at sea most of his since he was a child, mm. um, and therefore in 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 kind of male company. And here is Katinka who is kind of intrigued by him because, A, he's very beautiful, but then he's also beginning to develop a proper, a proper man's body in every respect. Yeah. Um, and she's kind of, in, and also she loves the idea that he is so completely naive about sex, and therefore is vulnerable to her manipulations. And then when they come ashore, I think they are beginning to have actual sexual relations. And of course, how young men, people greatly underestimate how romantic young men can be and how innocent they can be compared with women of their own age and certainly women a few years older. Yeah, although I think what Robert captures here is that 
where kind of lust and romance sort of get confused in the totally. adolescent male mind totally, and what yeah. you these incredibly strong feelings that you're having and that that Hal has for her he interprets as this tremendous pure love and there's a moment yeah. where he imagines himself he, he, he wants to be like Sir Lancelot um when in fact you know you the older and wiser reader know that actually um there is some of that going on. I'll be, I'll, I'll be fair to Hal, but uh, there is an awful lot of hormones driving that. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely on both sides. But 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 yeah. but, but absolutely. But the difference is that one of the two protagonists knows exactly what they're doing, and yeah. the other one hasn't got an earthly, not no. the faintest clue. No. So so there 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 so there they all are, um, hiding treasure, repairing the boat. When who should turn up an elephant lagoon? Uh-oh, it's the buzzer. And in he sails, and he notices that Sir Francis has captured this mighty prize, and he sort of feels he should have a piece of it. Because yeah, it's, it's been unfortunate timing from the buzzard's point of view, very. because he decided to leave and head for home. Exactly. Hours before the Lady Edwina sighted the Dutch ship. And if they'd attacked it together, then obviously they would have shared all the booty. But as it is, Sir Francis sees no reason why he should share it. Of course, uh, the buzzard then says, yeah, but I, mean, I was there for most of it. If you weren't there for the actual bit of it, you were hanging around, true. You didn't <laughs> actually get it. Sorry, old boy. And, and, and the buzzard fails to see. Yeah. The, the fairness of this of this conclusion and can't quite shake it out of his head that he should have a share of the treasure and basically that share should amount to um yeah a hundred percent but anyway so then there follows okay, one of the things that is fascinating about this book is that and this and we mentioned earlier the idea of, of of as it were the motif that is picked up um, um, variations are played on it the, the tune carries on and then later the, that original motif comes back and one of the motifs that comes back three times I think is the idea of a fight a battle at land and sea in the waters and on the shores an elephant lagoon elephant lagoon becomes it's like the first, second, third, fourth, fifth battles of Ypres this piece of sand and palm and water, because everybody thinks that there's treasure actually right there under the, under the actual shore of the bay, so they keep coming back there to try and get that treasure. So there then follows the first battle of Elephant Lagoon. Although just before that, there's one key thing that happens before Sir Francis and the buzzard uh, fall out is that they induct Hal as a knight Notonier. Indeed they do. Uh, and this is a great um, sort of rite of passage for him. And as part of that, he is presented with this wonderful heirloom of the Neptune sword, yes. which is this incredible, beautiful, beautiful sword with a giant sapphire in the pommel, uh, which was presented to one of the Courtney ancestors by Sir Francis Drake. I think it's Sir Francis's grandfather, was a, 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 a captain with Drake when they um, attacked Cadiz, the singeing of the King of Spain's beard. And the sword was captured, I guess, from either a Spanish admiral or a Spanish ship in that engagement and then presented to the patriarch, as it were, of the Courtney clan. Yeah. So Hal is now a member of the of the knights, and, and the Neptune sword will recur in future books, and again as a sort of sort of symbolic talisman of Courtney's. Um, yeah, uh, and, and, and the other key thing is that is that Hal is sneaking into to Katinka's tent at night, yeah, and and blissfully unaware that the the bellowing sounds of his exertions and her screams mean that it's not entirely a secret activity. Yes, yes, which again, I think, is the uh, the inexperience of youth. You, d- you don't realise how far sound carries. Anyway, the other thing is the how at this in this period is taken to um, Sir Francis's um, treasure, which is in a cave 
up a 100-foot drop. You have to walk along a path with a sheer drop on one side to get to this cave, which is sealed with rocks. And inside it are the proceeds from all his many escapades. Yeah, yeah. and only Hal and Francis know the location. Thoroughly honourable escapades, not at all like piracy. I mean, no, 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 not, not in the slightest bit. Look, I've got this piece of paper from the king. It says, I am not a pirate. That'll do. Yes, and there is, I th- again, I think Wilbur's... I'm sh- having known Wilbur and known what he was, um, his view of the world. He is, I think, enjoying juxtaposing the very chivalric induction of um, Hal into this ancient order of knights with them stashing the pirate treasure. It's it's just the um, the, yeah, the juxtaposition of this these very noble sentiments expressed in Latin and all derived from Christianity and all the rest of it, uh, with all these very, very <laughs> ignoble things going on. And, and also a philosophy in writing terms, which absolutely does not think that less is more. No, more is more. <laughs> no, no. No, and this book, of, of all his books, I think, um, this this is a more is more book. Um, however, we must get to the action, action, action. Yes, although, sorry, there's there's one key point, which is that along with the buzzard, uh, the buzzard has picked up a passenger en route, uh, who is Sam Bowles. Uh, the sailor yes. last seen cowardly sailing away from the battle, who was going to be hanged, but managed to jump overboard uh, basically cl- feeds his shipmates sharks in order that he survives, yes. clinging to a barrel until the buzzard picks him up. So he's now thrown in his lot with the buzzard. Hasn't he just? Um, hasn't he just? And the, maybe this is a sign that the buzzard doesn't have Sir Francis's best interests at heart because uh, one evening, uh, suddenly, shots ring out and the buzzard is launching an attack. He's got his ship in the lagoon, um, and he. Whereas the uh, the resolutions cannons have all been offloaded onto the land, and so uh, Sir Francis, it's not Sir Francis. So the buzzard uh, lets rip with his cannons using uh, his ship as sort of a, a floating gun platform. Yes, he's, as I recall, he's got it anchored in such a way and tied in such a way that he can, as it were, sort of swing the boat around on its anchor to, to as it were play the guns on whatever part of, of the beach and he wants to. Yes. But but Hal and Abilene, I think they get a little bit of warning, don't they? Well they do because they are canny and they as they are out duck hunting, um, they spot the, the the buzzard tying the springs in his anchor cables that will allow him to maneuver the guns. So they work out right. um, that he's up to exactly. no good. So Hal's uh, ingenious solution is to create some little fire rafts, burning rafts. Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly what exactly what Drake had done when he singed the King of Spain's beard. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which he hides on the other side of the lagoon, and so when the buzzard attacks, Hal and Avalie swim over with these rafts of burning wood and tar and stuff, and put them into or push them into uh, the the buzzard ship um which duly catches fire at which point the buzzard since fire is the thing which that people are most terrified of at sea and of course if you've got if you've got a ship loaded up with gunpowder it can go bang in the most serious way if the fire get and the gunpowder should mix mm. the buzzard has no alternative but to save himself by by sailing out, getting the pumps working as fast as he can, he sails away to sea. And interestingly, we then follow the buzzard down to Cape Town, where <laughs> a, a, very, a very funny scene. This is Wilbur, uh, again, having tremendous fun because there's a ship in Cape Town um, and the buzzard decides he's going to cut it out, you know, sneak aboard in the middle of the night and steal it, um, which he does highly successfully. And then he makes two surprising discoveries. Uh, one is that the man on board is none other than Colonel Schroeder, um, who is on his way back to Holland with the ransom demand. And the second piece of news is that the war between England and Holland is over. Peace has broken out. And indeed was over at the time at which Sir Francis 
attacked the resolution. This became, this is an incredibly, the, the plot of the entire book really sort of hangs upon this thing that Sir Francis has in fact, though he does not know it at the time, been a pirate because his license to be a privateer for the king has effectively run out now that peace has been declared and 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 England and Holland are all lovey-dovey again. It's like the old line, treachery is only a matter of dates. In this case, piracy is a matter of dates because if you're doing it as a privateer while war's declared, then you're fine. But if war's, um, if, if it's peacetime, then you're just a pirate. You're even fine to do it if, as it were, you can prove that you did not know that the war was over and that you were, A, a legitimate privateer to begin with and B, had no knowledge because, of course, this is the 17th century, so news travels very, very slowly, particularly if you're at sea. So it's perfectly reasonable that somebody would legitimately not know what the situation was, but they have to be able to prove that that they, as it were, were acting as they, they genuinely hmm. believed they were yeah. acting within the terms yeah. of the charter that they had been granted by their sovereign. That's the kind of what the rule book says. This will become very important. Uh, the other thing, there's a little Easter egg here for Wilbur fans because the Dutch ship um, that he uh, has tried to cut out is called uh, the Sonnefogel, uh, which is Dutch for sunbird. Uh, so another yes. appearance of Wilbur's um, favourite bird. Uh, and obviously a book we've discussed previously on this podcast. And there are honeybees too at some, some point, also from the sunbird. Anyway, so so the buzzard and Schroeder, Schroeder. Yes. Mm-hmm realize that they share a common enemy and my enemy's enemy is my friend and they also realize that they know where they're pretty sure they know well actually they do know where he he is and exactly where he is they also know what he's got there don't know exactly where he's got it but schroeder can can gain tremendous prestige and restore his reputation yes by going to the governor of the cape and saying look the pirate who took our ship. We know where he is. He's got Van der Velde and Katinka with him. He's also got the ship with him, of course, and he's got the treasure with him. And so a sort of two-pronged assault is then mounted. Well, I'm kind of zipping through the pages here, but effectively this one. A two-pronged assault is mounted. But actually, I mean, we're not actually zipping through that many pages because actually Wilbur is zipping through the story. Very good point. This is structurally one of the interesting things about this novel and, and that you already remarked upon, that um, we have a battle, effectively the same battle, fought three times in the same place yeah. with different outcomes. Um, but he's not putting a lot of space in between the, the first Battle of Elephant Lagoon and the second Battle of Elephant Lagoon. It's basically only as much time as it takes to, to get everyone back there. It, it's, and as much time as it takes, and also for for you to get a sense of the African interior as seen through the eyes of people who've never been there before. Because what happens is, it's a, it's a classic kind of land and sea assault. It's very contemporary in that respect. Yeah, so amph- that amphibious operation. Yes, the buzzard is going to sail back up the coast and attack Elephant Bay from the sea. And and uh, Schroeder is going to lead um, his troops, which are kind of native troops and Dutch troops from, from the garrison at Cape of Good Hope um, in Cape Town. He's going to lead them sort of diagonally northeast across what is now South Africa, I suppose, um, um, I think that's not accurate. I think he gets dropped off just up the up the coast from Elephant oh, okay. Lagoon. It's it's later that ha- that Hal goes across. Country. I'm miss- I'm missing up. I'm messing up my battles, aren't I? You're quite yeah, right. Yeah, you're confusing the, the, the second and third battle. Easily done. Rookie, rookie error, but easily done. You're quite right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they do. That's so. But they there is still some interaction with nature. But you're right. They get dropped off. And they, they, they go about three days. Of, they got like a three day hike to get from the right. drop off point back to the Elephant Lagoon. Yeah. Okay. So anyway. Quite right. So the buzzard is coming in from the sea. Schroeder is coming in from land to take, as it were, the Courtney's in the rear. So they're going to be the, the attacked, a two-pronged assault. And in order not to have to repeat the description of a battle, can we just say, can we give what the result is of, of, of the, the second leg of this tie? Well, before we uh, give give the result, again, there's there's one thing that's happened while the uh, Dutch have been regathering their forces and, and making kind of common cause with the buzzard. 
which is that, uh, as well as all the other elements of this novel, there's also a sort of astrological dimension, because Sir Francis ah, yes. uh, can yes, cast yes. horoscopes and read and read the stars, and he has cast his own horoscope, and um, he's he's not massively enthused by what he sees in his own future. At, at what point does the blood red comet cross his birth star? Yes, th- that's 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 now. I'm I'm pretty sure that's now. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is, I mean, I I'm no astrologer, but I think a blood red comet crossing your birth star is generally taken to be a bad thing. Um, so, and this is the, the crucial bit, he's foreseeing that he is not necessarily long for this earth. He makes Hal swear the solemnest oath he possibly can, that he will never, ever, ever, ever divulge the location of the treasure. No matter. No matter what, yeah. And this is a, this is a really interesting point of the novel for me, because this becomes a real test for how, and ultimately it will have catastrophic consequences. And to a modern reader, you're thinking, oh, for heaven's sake, just give him the treasure and and save what's really important to you. But again, the the way the Courtney's, and certainly the way Francis thinks, is the treasure is the most important thing. And even to save his own life, he would not have it given up. But but it sort of is in the sense that it's his legacy. I mean, the the treasure is what will enable his family to prosper in his mind is what he you know he's a man who has has striven all his life to to sort of fund a dynasty mm. as it were and this is the means by which his heirs Hal in particular can can then acquire status and and, and prosper and 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 my son I'm not going to let my son even even if he's trying to help me betray the thing which I think is important. Because it's, it's kind of, he's thinking he's being altruistic, but in a sort of very selfish way. Yeah. Because I think Hal makes it quite clear that he'd rather have his father than the treasure. Yes, he does. And again, I think you made the point earlier that um, all the characters surrounding Hal have their flaws. And it's, it's Hal's maturing is learning to recognize those. And I think this is his father's flaw. Um, that as noble and religious and virtuous and honourable as he is, he can't see past the treasure, and ultimately that's his his undoing. So where we have the the setup here then is that we have what are in fact overwhelming forces converging on the bay, and a, a father who has entrusted his son with a secret and told him, "Do not give this away." And the reason this becomes important is that the second battle of Elephant Lagoon is one that the Courtney's lose. Yeah, um, they are uh, sort of outnumbered, outgunned, um, surrounded by the uh, the attack from uh, from from the rear that, that Schroeder's leading, uh, and they are all captured. And this is clearly the 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 low well. It's the start of the low point of the novel for the Courtney's because the low point um, does get lower. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're taken back to Cape Town in chains and they are thrown in the prison of the Cape Castle. Worse than chains, they're taken back to Cape Town in the slaveholds of, right, of the Buzzard's Gal ship. Of Marais, of the Buzzard's yeah. ship. So they actually experience that journey as slaves. Yeah. And they're all lying there together. And at one point, um, how one of the sailors, Daniel, I think it is, who's the, one of the most loyal members of the crew, the bosun of the ship, has been wounded. And, and Hal is chained next to him and, and has to remove um, a musket ball from Daniel's back in order that he can survive, which he successfully does. Um, which is kind of important because it it it's another kind of rite of passage for Hal, and also it means that Daniel survived, which also becomes important later. Um, yep. And so they arrive there as slaves. They're chained. Yep. They're filthy. They're then separated from the black crew members, including Aboli. Yes, this is this is where they uh, exercise their white privilege because, of course, you can't actually enslave a white person in the Cape Colony. That's true. You can treat them as, but it's a, it's a, it's a very fine difference. And weirdly, <laughs> yeah, distinction that difference. weirdly, what happens is that that Francis Howe and the white crew members of the, of the Courtney crew are are placed in a stinking jail. The black survivor, four of them, 
are actually initially treated better. They're fed better and kept in better, but only only in order that they might fetch a better price on the block. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And the key thing that happens in terms of the slaves is that three of them um, end up being bought by the buzzard. After one of them, which is Aboli, has been bought by Katinka for a knockdown price because nobody dares argue with her because her, her husband is about to become the new governor. And she just basically likes the idea. She she basically fancies um, Aboli <laughs> and likes the idea of being able to humiliate him yes. and enslave him and demean him. Um, so they're there. The, the white slavers, including Sir Francis, the white crew members, including Sir Francis, are in a jail, a cell, in the bowels of the of the castle of Cape Town. Over to you. Yes. Uh, there are two... In fact, there are three new characters. <laughs> Some of the new characters um, we meet we just, here. <laughs> amongst the new characters are... Um, so there... No one expects the new characters. There is a fellow... There's a fellow prisoner called Althuda um, who yeah. ha- has tried to lead a rebellion against a breakout he was a slave who's tried to lead a breakout against the dutch uh, and was recaptured uh, there is his sister sukina who is a slave uh, also owned by katinka um and this becomes significant and then there is stardiger john slow john who is the town executioner um, it's also a thing that the altuda and sukina they are, I suppose, Indonesian. We would now say, um, by by you know, racially that they were they were enslaved in the Indies. Yeah, the Dutch East Indies. Yeah, Dutch. Yeah, which I think would be sort of Indonesia in that part of the world, Malaysia. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And the key point is that they are mixed race. Their mother was um, a princess. That's right, an Indonesian princess. An Indonesian princess, and their father is English. That's right. Yes. Um, so they speak English. Um, and, and this but it also gives them a side in the kind of racial context of the book. It's an interesting twist that that, that they are half half English. Yeah. Um, and to the cut to the chase here, two things happen with the slavers, the, the, the crew members. I'm so sorry. Sir Francis, everybody knows that Sir Francis knows where the treasure is hidden. The buzzard has basically taken Sir Francis's letters of Mark, or whatever it's called, the, the document, which 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 means um, that he is a privateer and ha- on the orders of the king, essentially denying Sir Francis the ability to prove in court that he was anything other than a pirate. Well, he's he's, he's burned them, hasn't he? he? He takes the he takes the letter of Mark and he burns it in front of Sir Francis. Um, oh, that's right. As if it never existed. Exactly. So now, Sir Francis taking the resolution is an act of piracy for which he's going to be tried on pain of death. The thi- problem from the point of view of, the, of Van der Velde and the Buzzard and, and Schroeder is that they don't want Sir Francis to die until he's told them where the treasure is. So Hal and most of the crew have been made essentially slave labourers. They're working every day, clad in almost nothing, to build the walls of, of, of the castle in Cape Town. Um, incredibly dangerous conditions, brutal, they're whipped. They're, they're nothing more than animals, really, in the eyes of the Dutch. They have no... Yeah. They have no and they're being worked to death, basically. And they're being worked to death. Exactly, exactly. Aboli has become um, the, uh, the groom and coachman for Katinka, who's dressed him up in this fancy uniform. And And she has... And she thinks she sort of tamed him, um, although he is actually now establishing communications both from him to uh, Hal and from Sukina to Althuda. So they're beginning to, they're beginning to develop um, a connection and a sort of suggestion that, that they will work together to escape one day, who knows how. And finally, Sir Francis, bereft of the proof that he was acting in his lights honourably and not as a pirate, is on trial for piracy. And there's no doubt about what the verdict is going to be. The question is this, and it's put to Hal, to, sorry, to Sir Francis very, very bluntly. He has a choice. He can give up the treasure, the location of the treasure, 
and have a swift death, a swift and relatively painless death. Execution, bang, it's gone. Or, or he can try to keep the location secret, but it will be an entirely futile endeavour because slow John, the wicked, lifeless almost, cold, unfeeling, brutal, physically very powerful, colony torturer and executioner, will take the secret out of him, bone by bone, limb by limb, cut by cut, burn by burn, until he speaks. Will he be able to resist the uh, horrific tortures of Slow John? Sadly, that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, you might think that having had three, at least three enormous set piece battles, more villains um, than you can shake a stick at, uh, buried treasure, our heroes in jeopardy, uh, we're somehow coming to the denouement of this novel. But you would be completely wrong. No. We've not even really got going on the actual main business of the novel yet. We have barely dipped our spoon into the, into the gooey, sticky, sweet, <laughs> scrummy trifle. That is Birds of Prey. So do join us next time when we look at the uh, stunning second half of Birds of Prey. But until then, it's goodbye from me, Tom Harper. And it's goodbye from me, Diana Thomas. That Wilbur Smith Show is produced by Christopher Wynne. Music by Dewey DeLay. Executive producer, Niso Smith.